0: Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, and today I'm here with Tamara Winfrey-Harris, who is the author of Sisters Are All Right, Changing the Broken Narrative of Black Women in America. Thanks for being here with me.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I'm hoping you can start out, um, this is the second edition of this book, but talking a little bit about how this came about, why you decided to write this book.
1: So the first edition of the book came out in 2015 and I wrote it because I was tired of the way um, that people were talking about women like me. Like if you looked in every headline and conversation, it's, you know, there was a conversation about black women being too broke, too fat, too sick, you know, too many kids to, you know, the, my favorite one was too successful for anyone to marry us. Like all of these contradictory, sometimes contradictory things that always made us out to be problems. And it just didn't jive with the women that I knew, the black women that I knew, even the ones who were single or broke or fat or any of those things, because it was a really reductive conversation. It was rooted in centuries of bias. It was rooted in sexism and racism. Um, And so what I wanted to do is explore the roots of that bias, but then most importantly, I interviewed more than a hundred women, diverse women from across the country, about what black women's lives are really like, which is a lot more hopeful and nuanced um, than I was hearing.
0: Right. Um, and I have to say, reading this was like this lovely, like love letter to black women, I, you know, in many ways, which anybody who anytime I see women talking about other women, you know, lovingly, I think it's wonderful because we don't, we often don't do that. Right. We often do even other women, what, you know, what you're talking about. So I was like, it's so uplifting. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So with the second edition you added, can you talk a little bit before we sort of get into the meat of the book, what you kind of added, why you wanted to come out with another edition um, this
1: year? So it's just been six years, but so much has changed. Um, You know, we have um, a Black biracial woman as vice president of the United States. Um, When I first wrote about marriage in the book, gay marriage wasn't legal. So I was talking about Black women um, and there were a lot of Black women who loved women who couldn't get married. Um, you know, so much has changed. At, oh, and B, and Rihanna's a billionaire. That's my favorite one. <laughs> um, but so much has changed for black women, but too much has stayed the same. So I wanted to like address these things that were shifting. You have you have black women at the at the head of the new civil rights movement, like three black women founded Black Lives Matter. So you Have all these shifting things, black women using their power, you know, coming into the halls of power. But then you all ha- also have this, um, misogynoir that continues to follow them. Like, if you look at the ways that Vice President Kamala Harris has written about, you still hear, um, she slept her way to the top, she's too angry when you know she was too angry on the uh the debate stage, um, and you know, while people weren't interested in her as a candidate and herself as herself, you know, when Joe Biden got the Democratic nomination, people started saying, you know, what would be great as a sidekick? A Black woman. Um, So there's that same narrative of, you know, Jezebel and Mammy and Sapphire that still holds. So I wanted to explore a little more of that and celebrate our triumphs but point out the ways that we still need to be vigilant.
0: Mm-hmm. And and so you've divided the book into eight sort of different chapters that go over some of these major things. So I thought we could maybe talk a little bit about each of those. There's things you want to highlight um, in them. Um, but the first is this idea of beauty, right? And what, it, what beauty means and is represented in our society and sort of the racist ideologies and concepts around that. So you talk a little bit about that and Beauty, especially for Black women.
1: Well, you know, part of the problem is there's a there's a sort of a founding stereotype, and it goes along with the mammy that you know Black women are um, unattractive and undesirable, and especially Black women with darker skin and more West African features are undesirable. But then you layer on top of it the sexism that all women you know face like i say in the beginning of the chapter like you know one you know one year you're supposed to be a waif and then there's like a thigh gap and then i heard about like a hip smile or something you were so like <laughs> there's so many minute ways that society finds to regulate women's bodies but then you add into that being a part of a group of women who over centuries have been told they're not even in the ballpark of being attractive and so I talk to women about how how it feels to navigate that.
0: Yeah, and you know that that comes along with that next chapter, which I am. It always makes me happy with when because you're talking <laughs> about sex, right? Like this idea, um, and and I think it's really important to think about how we do this so much to Black women and Black girls, especially being sexual objects and fiends, But that idea of like women as sexual objects or beings and not being able to um, and not wanting women to own that sexuality or own being a sexual being. Um, So can you talk a little bit about that, some of the things you found and saw with that?
1: So one of the really interesting new things that I discovered, like, you know, I'm a, I'm a Gen -er, Xer. And a lot of women that I talk to Around my age, for the first for the first book, had resolutely always grown up hearing "just don't do it." Um, you know, there is a stereotype of black women as being hypersexualized, and the response to that very often by our mothers and fathers were to encourage black women and black girls as their sexuality was growing to be extra to appear extra chaste. And Black women were, you know, encouraged to deny their sexuality in a way that sometimes followed them into adulthood. But in this new um, edition, I also talked to some younger women, some millennials and Gen Zers, and they talked about the really difficult line they walk between existing in a really sexualized Um, environment, you know, where you have social media, where you're supposed to be sexy for the gram and, you know, all these pics and, you know, they're looking back at it and they're, you know, you have these songs that are very sexually explicit, but then there's still this undercurrent of for Black women, if you go too far, you can't return and you're not respectable. And so it is even harder for them to figure out where they're supposed to be and what their authentic sexuality is in the midst of all that which is also incredibly heteronormative so yeah
0: no you know like reading your book it made me think about two like um and, and you talk about throughout you know um in different chapters Beyonce comes up and you said Rihanna and I think about Lizzo as well in some of this right and and what you're talking about about those like you know, looking at, you mentioned Mammy and Jezebel and some of those, and the Sapphire and some of those stereotypes and tropes we have with Black women. Um, And and yes, and how that becomes this Catch-22 sort of, it continues to be um, in ways that are really difficult to get out of.
1: (laughs) You know, Melissa Harris-Perry, She's got this book, Sister Citizen, and she describes it as being in a crooked room. And I think that's brilliant um, being in a crooked room and standing in front of a fun house mirror. And it's like you're trying to write yourself and figure out what writing yourself looks like, but you're looking at this skewed picture. So how can you figure out how you're supposed to stand? And I think that's the conundrum that you know Black women find themselves in.
0: Yeah, and and with that, and you mentioned that this a lot of it is heteronormative. Um, and so that idea is those next chapters, um you and, and I appreciate that you separated these two chapters out, even though I'm gonna mention them together, is that marriage and motherhood, right? Because we often think of them as needing to go together. Um, so could you talk a little bit about um what you were finding about marriage and 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 it's, it's interesting how you talk about sort of the changing demographics of what it means to be or not to be right to be married, even. Mm-hmm.
1: So, you know, what prompted all of the discussion about black women in marriage and probably about six or seven years ago it was everywhere because the census, the two 2000- thousand. 2020 census, oh my gosh, the years are just (laughs) flying by. 2010 census had showed that Black women were like half as likely to get married as their white counterparts. There are lots of reasons for that, including, you know, a gap in achievement, over policing, and also the fact that everyone is getting married less in this country and actually in some European countries, vastly less. But people didn't talk about that. Um, what became the story is what's wrong with Black women that no one wants to choose them because that's the way people generally talk about r- romance. The You know, the men choose <laughs> the women and single guys are living the dream and single women are sad spinsters. You know, that, that narrative imprinted itself on um, Black women. Um, and so but, you know, another consequence of that is that the romantic advice that Black women um, received and still receive very often is not about how you have a healthy relationship or how you make yourself happy through partnership, whatever your partnership looks like. It is how do you get chosen by men? What do men like? How do you be submissive? How do you? Um, which is really damaging, And so in the chapter, I talk to women who are not married, women who have been married and are divorced, and women who are married about the realities of singleness and marriage and marriage and divorce and the realities of marriage, um, which is never what you hear from those um, romance advice types.
0: (laughs) And, you know, and you also, like you said earlier that... um, between the first and second edition, marriage has become legalized. So I, there's some of that issue of what it looks like to be in a, you know, even in a marriage. Right. Um, and you mentioned that, but even um, that sort of a marriage that's non-heteronormative
1: as well. And so much so that, and I love I love the couple that I introduced. They're so cute. I just loved it, like interviewing them. But, you know, one one of them, she said, I couldn't. I couldn't picture, even though I wanted to be with a woman, I couldn't even visualize what it would be like because that was just so far out of the realm of everything I was told as a Black woman I could be.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. And and I do, yes, I, I, I find that mm-hmm. really great to be able to share that and talk about that and have that honest conversation with, and, you know, like it, for a long time, or you know, even now, like that idea of it being out of the realm or not being able to really visual have have people who you can look at and say, "I want to be like that," right? Because there's that doesn't exist, um, and that made me like I too am a gen, you know, Gen Xer, so I thought, uh, like like the motherhood chapter for me was. Just made me think about all the way, you know, that idea of the welfare mom, the idea, uh, right? That that this constant um, image that has been the Moynihan report, all of that, that sort of put out, put out. So I really appreciated um, how nuanced, you know, you're thinking about those issues that you, you know, talked about. And so, can you talk a little bit about that, like approaching? thinking about motherhood and really making people think about the complexities of what that means.
1: There is sort of a, a fourth foundational um, stereotype that uh, occurred in America, like the mid 20th century, around the mid 60s, um, based in, port, in part on the Moynihan Report that said that the, the problem with, you know, black American communities and black families was that too many black women were the heads of households and it was emasculating to men and it was throwing the whole, you know, community and black society off. And so, you know, you think about this report that comes out at a time before the Civil Rights Act has even been passed. So, you know, my grandparents in Mississippi can't even vote yet. But the problem, the biggest problem that we are facing is Black women once again. So there's this idea of black, kind of all of the other stereotypes kind of coalesce into this one. You know, these Black women who have, you know, bred indiscriminately, so, you know, hypersexual, they're emasculating, they've chased away their men, they're heading a household, they're not submissive in the way they should be and they're releasing these children who are menaces into the streets. Um, and so, you know, I talk to a lot of mothers, Black mothers, whether they are traditional and married mothers or single mothers or have been both, and they all get tarred with that brush. Um, you know, I talk to women who um, were professors and single mothers and who, you know, whose families still worried that their children would somehow be deprived and you know, turned to a life of crime just because they, no matter, no matter what they provided for them, but solely um, because of the fact that they had a single parent. Um, I talked to other women who talked about how people don't believe that Black mothers are intentional. And that's kind of a byproduct of that kind of welfare queen thinking that, you know, Black mothers don't make intentional choices on the raising of, of their children. And I talked a little bit about how um, Michelle Obama kind of changed the shape of Black motherhood, how actually finally seeing a Black mother and wife in the White House, it looked like me. Um, allowed many of us to see our experiences reflected back to us, absent all the stereotype.
0: Mm -hmm. And I appreciate, I mean, throughout the book, you bring in a lot of ways that uh, popular culture, popular media sort of addresses some of these. And just thinking about all the ways in which we, you know, it's reinforced not only in our sort of political spaces, but also in our popular media spaces, right? You talk about the ways in which um, Black mothers are discussed or Black women who, who are mothers, right, are discussed in sort of, and whether it is by comedians, what, you know, whatever it might be, in those popular media spaces that continue to add to these, um, con- these issues that are sort of stacked up against mothers.
1: I always find popular culture really interesting. And actually I started writing and, you know, analyzing popular culture. And I know people, especially today, feel like looking at songs and music and coverage of celebrities is, is taking it a step too far and it's making something that's entertainment too serious, but popular culture can shift minds and popular culture you know, affects how, you know, society views things. A lot of people have said that the changes in popular culture in part led to the fact that marriage equality finally passed because we saw more gay people on television and people could finally, you know, kind of undo some of those stereotypes. So, you know, I think that's why that's important in my book to kind of show the ways that um, popular culture undercuts sometimes black women's equality and, and sometimes supports it.
0: Mm-hmm. And it, it, you move into then, so you know, the sex, marriage, beauty, motherhood, but then that sort of second half is looking kind of at um, things like, and as someone who works with um, young people and used to teach in high school, that anger, right. You know, often, especially I've seen young black girls being told they can't be angry. Right. Um, and so you talk about sort of that idea of, anger. So can you talk a little bit about sort of what you were seeing with that?
1: So it aligns with the Sapphire stereotype that Black women are kind of um, loud and aggressive and angry, kind of masculine. Um, And as a result of that, you know, a lot of Black women and Black girls have learned to hold their tongues when they shouldn't. You know, I talk to a lot of Black women about being in the workplace You know, a few years ago, you know, Sheryl Sandberg had that book about lean in and was telling Black, you know, women in general, you've got to lean in, you got to speak out more in the workplace. But Black women said, I don't feel I can do that um, because I have a really thin line before my speaking out turns into people thinking I'm being angry or aggressive. Um, And we also see that played out now in the over suspension rates of Black girls, Black girls are vastly more likely to be suspended um, despite not misbehaving more. They're more they're more likely to get violated for dress codes. They're more likely to be sent out of the classroom for, you know, speaking up, not disrespectfully, but speaking up. Um, and so we still bear the weight of that stereotype that says, you know, we should be, we should be, we're aggressive, so we have to be silent. In response to it.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and along those lines and getting into that idea of um, strength, right? Um, so mm-hmm. there's the anger, but there's also that strength. So could you talk a little bit about that as well and sort of what you were looking at and finding there?
1: So that chapter was about the strong Black woman stereotype, <laughs> which so many of us are ambivalent about because I talked to a lot of women who were like, This inspires me when I hear about my, you know, grandmother who raised eleven kids on a farm in like Alabama and like, you know, in the 1930s, like that took tremendous strength and you know, she could do anything. So there's this inspirational side, but then there's this other side where black women repeatedly put other people before and things ahead of their own well-being, um, where we face a lot of lifestyle diseases. Um, where, you know, we die too soon. Um, our health isn't great because, you know, we, we do play a subservient role and think that we are strong and unbreakable, which no one is. And so, you know, that takes its toll emotionally and physically on Black women. So the chapter kind of talks about balancing those two things
0: and you know throughout the book and i don't know if it was in the chapter on strength or if it was in the chapter the next one on health you have these moments of all right and all right and which are lovely right so you have these little um short paragraphs but i think my favorite is like the woman who started like the napping um what
1: <laughs> uh, the nap ministry yes
0: i was like, <laughs> I, was like I was like yes like, and have to like, I know, like, I work with, like, men who will be like, I take naps every day. And women, we're like, we don't even have time. Like, if I can get, a, you know, like, five minutes for lunch, I'm great. And they'll be like, I take an hour nap. And so I was like, this woman is genius. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, she, like, I know one of the quotes from there is I, she she is like, reject any system that expects you to be a machine. You are not a machine. Um, and we have this idea this very American idea that like, it's almost a competition sometimes to see who slept less. I only got four hours of sleep. Oh, B, you got four, I only got three. Um, And I think that like that can be amplified when you come from a culture that's always had to work so hard. Sometimes because you have to, you can forget that sometimes just because you have had to do something, that doesn't mean it's right. Um so you know taking time to rest I love the nap ministry to remind me take a nap after this <laughs> As a
0: matter of fact. I'm just like this is awesome. I know I'm like yeah I'm like we need to like we more of this more of this yes uh, because yes like you talk about that idea of strength and it and and also like that black women are, Often, ever like under a microscope, you know, throughout you talk about like you talk about Michelle Obama and Kamala Harris, um, and also Shonda Rhimes, like these women who have succeeded in so many ways, and yet, um, there's they continue to be under this microscope for thing. Right. I mean, I remember when it was like Michelle Obama should not be wearing shirts without sleeves. Right. You know, like who cares? Like who really, like I, if I had arms like that, that I would wear shirt, you know, like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> but these ideas, right. That we, yes, that continue. And I, like, I appreciated that too, that, you know, like we need to really think about how we, um, I, and I don't know which chapter, it might have been in the anger chapter, um, but where you talk about how, like, um, the woman who wrote the New York Times article about Shonda Rhimes, and was saying there wasn't even a Black woman in the staff to be able to say, hey, this is not something you should be doing, right, and thinking
1: about. Right, the, you know, and it, it speaks back to the reason for, divert not just diversity, but inclusion. You know, having a Black woman there, but having... Or better yet, black women there, um, also who have power to halt things like that and say that's not okay or that's wrong, and that's what happens when we're absent from places and when we don't have our voice.
0: Right, and and so another thing you talk about is health, right? Um, and I. You know, there's physical health, but you also talk about um, the issues of mental health, and I think, especially right now, right and what we're coming out of, we have seen all the ways that, um, especially Black women, have been impacted by COVID and what's been going on. Um, and so, could you talk a little bit about that and 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 what you're finding, especially in you know, even in this short time um, between these two editions, that stands out. So I,
1: I think positively, I think, you know, mental health gets a lot more attention. And I think in generations like Gen X, Gen X and younger, people are a lot more comfortable, you know, reckoning with their mental health and seeing it much more like their physical health as something that needs ongoing maintenance. Um, But I still talk to women that talk about Trying to manage their mental health and having friends and family who don't think that's something that Black women do, who think you just, you know, you, either you need to pray about it or, you know, you don't need to take medication, you don't need to see a therapist. Um, a lot of women talked about realizing once they became adults how many people in their family were just self medicating. Um, some of their mental illness, whether through food or through drinking or other issues. They realized that there was a lot of trauma in their families, but people never did anything about it, Um, in part because, you know, in many cases, Black people in general don't have access um, to mental health uh, care. Um, And there's still kind of a mistrust of the, when we're seeing that with COVID, a mistrust of the medical establishment with good reason given the history of the way um, the medical establishment has treated Black people.
0: Mm-hmm. And and you sort of end the, you know, your last chapter is about power. Uh, so mm-hmm. do you want to like, you know, and, and thinking about that, so could you talk a little bit about that idea of, I love like your subtitle is what, fuck it, I'll do it,
1: which is really yeah. fun. <laughs> So it's like, you know, I black women are always do, but especially in recent years, have just used their power in amazing ways. And look at Stacey Abrams in Georgia. Talk about turning like no matter how you which side of the fence you're on. She flipped a, a state from one color to another. color. Like she did that. Um, she, along with other black women, did that. And it's significant. Like it's significant. It's significant in the state. Of Georgia, and now she's running for a governorship. Um, you look at the civil unrest of last year, um, and the high profile of Black Lives Matter, started by three Black queer women, um, and a lot of the community at community activism that was going on in you know local areas during that time, also led by Black women. Black women are doing some amazing things. Um, And in that chapter, I look at the ways that's supported and the ways it's not supported and it's undermined, including the fact that while Black women are leading all these efforts on behalf of other people, how very often we can't get people to do the same for us. And so, you know, they had to be a whole campaign launched by the African-American Policy Institute, Say Her Name. Um, because Black women are killed by police at unprecedented numbers, too. People don't talk about it. And we don't remember the names of those women. Um, so, you know, those are some examples. Or you have trans women who are, ki- Black trans women are killed at horrifying numbers. People aren't marching for them. Um, so I also looked at the ways that despite our leadership for other people in the community, we aren't getting that same support back.
0: Yes, I appreciated um, that you were, you know, you not only sort of talked about that, but were specific about some of those stories, right, that need to be heard and need to be talked about. Um, because, yes, as a white woman, I think sometimes we need to shut up and get out of the way and we don't do that very well. Um, I will just say, uh, yes, and, and to, to listen to those who know better. Um, you know, so you have, so you do this great job of like bringing in these. And like I said, I, I found it like this lovely love letter, right? Like, what are you hoping, you know, you've got this second edition. What are you hoping for? I mean, maybe you don't like, do you have these sort of hopes? Like, what do you want people to like take from this, you know, take from your book or get from your book?
1: So I want... I want Black women themselves to, I want them to see themselves in these stories, Um, and I want them to feel affirmed, and I want other people to understand us better, too. I mean, you're right, very often, you know, people often talk at and about Black women instead of listening to us, and I think this book is an opportunity for people to listen. I've compiled the stories of lots of women um, so it's an opportunity for them to listen and know us and for Black women to be affirmed.
0: Yes, I, um, I'm i in finals week, in the midst of finals week at the University <laughs> of Ratt, And I took a couple students out to dinner yesterday and I'm like, I have to do an interview tomorrow. But then after I'm done with that, I am going to gift you something cause I have a, <laughs> like, that you have to read. Everything you've talked about this semester and everything <laughs> you complain about is in this book. <laughs> Uh, one and, and they are just I'm like everything you say like this is here I'm like you will love it like, but I do like I do feel like they're like um sometimes I see with especially younger black women in college and you talk about mm-hmm. like you know that we see lots and lots of um black women in colleges graduating but that they're they do often not see themselves or they do not feel that they are heard or or listen to um and respected in those ways so i was like oh, there's so many young
1: girls <laughs> i'm like this right and, and i feel like like younger younger black women have a lot less patience um for that than like my generation to like i i am i meet younger women and i'm like wow like they are super rat like they are like this is ridiculous um, and so I want to make sure that they are supported um, so that they can carry on fighting, fighting for change. They can do it. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
0: Yeah. If, it, if the ones I know are any indication, they, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they've they got it covered. I, I'm always like, I'm often like, we just need to like listen to young people and stop getting in their way and things might be better. Um, so are you working? So my, you know, usually my last question is like, yeah. are there anything you're working on right now that you, you know, want to shout out or talk about? I know we're in, still in a crazy time, but if you have any other things or, um, you know, projects that you want to shout out.
1: So what I'm playing with now is that I'm working on a proposal and I'm thinking about like the 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 steps that Black women need to take to get free. Like, how do we extract ourselves from these stereotypes ourselves? Because, you know, society is slow to change. But how do we start thinking about ourselves and other Black women differently? Um, Also, earlier this year, I came out with my second book, which is Dear Black Girls: Letter from Your Sister on Stepping into Your Power, which is a great companion to The Sisters Are All Right. I asked Black women to write Letters to Black girls touching on a lot of these different issues and talking to them about how they navigated Black womanhood. And uh, anyone can always keep up with me at TamaraWinfreyHarris.com.
0: Well, it has been wonderful. Again, this is Tamara Winfrey Harris, who wrote The Sisters Are All Right, and it is in its second edition. Um, Tamara, it's been great talking with you for New Books Network. It's been great.
1: Yes, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Bye-bye.